We are starting a brand new series called Famous Last Words, and uh, we're walking through the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to go kind of verse by verse, maybe passage by passage, and look at what uh, is said here. But there are some, uh, there's a lot of famous last words from people. Um, Winston Churchill's uh, alleged famous last words were, I'm bored with it all. And then he passed away, I guess. Uh, he was done. Um, George Orwell's uh, rumored famous last words were this, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. I mean, I guess if you're going to go out, just go out with a bang, right? Just, just, just stick it to people on the way out. Uh, although this is disputed, Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter, painted, you know, Mona Lisa and Last Supper and all this stuff. He, he's rumored to have said this. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Wow. I mean, talk about thinking about things on the way out, right? Um, but there's a lot of famous last words. What's interesting for us as we're studying this book of 2 Timothy is that these are Paul's last writings that we know of. So these are Paul's last words. And so, so think about what you would want to write. If you had like an opportunity to write one last thing or one last letter to somebody close to you, what would you include in that? And so just kind of set the stage. We'll get into some of the historical stuff uh, and, and more of the background as we get through this series. But uh, throughout AD 64 to AD 68 under Nero, there was a lot of persecution of Christians. And some people say that uh, around 2,000 martyrs happened during that time. And that's really not very many compared to what would happen. That was just the first wave of persecution against Christians. But during this time, uh, the Apostle Paul has been kind of in and out of prison, in and out of house arrest, uh, and kind of traveling around trying to resolve. Uh, he eventually appeals to Rome. Peter is in prison, uh, in and out of prison during this time as well. And so somewhere around A.D. 67, A.D. 68 is where we get this letter that Paul is writing. And many scholars believe that he is writing this in prison, that he has already had his trial, it's the, that he's already been tried and found guilty, and that his execution date has been set. And so Paul is writing this knowing that he doesn't have... Uh, anything, uh, doesn't have much time left. And we can see that from other places in uh, this letter that he's alluding to that. And he's basically sitting on death row and these are his final messages. So that's kind of the stage from where this happens from. And so let's look at this and what would you say if you had one last letter, one last thing to write? This is what Paul chose to write in 2 Timothy Starting off chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Kind of similar to other letters that he writes. He changes up the verbiage just a little bit here, but it's kind of just, hey, this is who I am. And he's writing this to Timothy, my beloved child. Now, we know this is not Paul's actual child, and Timothy is not, in fact, a child at this time. He's a son in the faith. And, and so other places, in other translations, you might see son here. He, he was, Paul was like a father in the faith to, to Timothy. And so he's writing with this deep level of connection. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. From God, the Father, and Christ, Christ Jesus, our Lord, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. 
Now, some people believe that the reason Paul mentions this here is because uh, there were other times when Paul was in prison and Timothy would come and to visit him in prison and would leave with tears. And Paul cherished those moments because there were very few people, as you see at the end of this letter, you can read on that there were a lot of people who left him. There were a lot of people who didn't stick by him, but Timothy was faithful. Timothy was one of those faithful few. And he also goes on to say this in verse five. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So this book, as we get into it, it is filled with risk, it is filled with suffering, it is filled with a lot of things. And I could go a million different directions with this opening, uh, these opening verses, but what really struck me was all of these relationships that seem to last and stand the test of time in Paul's life and around Timothy's life. Here we see a legacy of his grandmother and his mother. And, and last night we did some child dedications. We're gonna do child dedications in this, uh, the next service after this one. But we see this legacy of, of how he grew up in the faith, about how people poured into him year after year after year. And we see these relationships that lasted in Timothy's life. And here, Paul is getting ready to pass the baton off to Timothy in his ministry. And these are some of the things he's going to tell Timothy to stay faithful in. This is kind of like when Moses passed the baton off to Joshua. This is that in the New Testament. So it's a big deal. But these relationships that last seem to define this opening sentence. It seems to define what Paul was thinking about as he's on death row getting ready to be executed uh, for his faith. He's thinking about these relationships that last. Now, I want you to think about just in our lives right now, how many relationships do you have that have stood the test of time? How many relationships? I mean, even though Timothy wasn't that old, he could be called an old friend of Paul's. How many relationships do you, do you have that, that, that do that, that last? See, too many times, especially, unfortunately, in the body of Christ, we think we have all of these close relationships. We think we have these close friendships. But have you ever noticed, not just in the church, but have you ever noticed that, that when you're in a church and then you leave a church, all these friends that you thought were really close no longer are close friends? And you're like, why is that? Or maybe when you're in a job for so many years and then you leave that job and you thought you had close friends at that job, but they're no longer friends anymore. You no longer stay in touch. Why, why is that? Or, or maybe you change from one school to the next or one grade to the next and these friends that you thought were so close are no longer close friends. Like, I thought I had close friends. Have anybody ever thought that before? Like, why is that? Well, one pastor that I heard put it this way. He said, many times what we think are close friends are simply a case of intersecting schedules. Our schedules just happen to intersect on a regular basis and we assume we have close friends because of intersecting schedules. But you, just because your schedules intersect on a regular basis does not mean you have relationships that last. They, it does not mean that you've built in the ingredients that it takes to, to be in a position like this where you have a son in the faith or a father in the faith or a close friend. It, it's not what it takes because as soon as the schedules change, all of a sudden, your friendship seems to change. So what does it take for us as believers? Because as believers, we're supposed to be known by our love for one another. So what would it take for us to have relationships that really last? I mean, because I think that's what we really want. We really, I mean, we just want that naturally. God designed us for relationships. 
But what would it take for us to have those kind of relationships? I used to tell teenagers this all the time, but uh, even as adults, we can get this. But there are really four types of friends that you need to have. I'm going to rapid fire these at you real quick. Uh, if you were back in my youth group back in uh, 99 through 2004, you would have heard this probably. Uh, but there are four types of friends that you need. And if you're a teenager in the, the building, you're, you're going to need to hear this anyway. But you, you need to have some leave out friends, <laughs> some friends that you just leave out. They're bad influences on you. They, they're not good. You know, you, 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 you have to recognize who are leave out friends that are, are dragging you down. Okay. Leave out friends. Then you need to have some help out friends. These are friends that God has called you to pour into, to help out. The problem I've seen with so many teenagers is they end up confusing their help out friends with this next category, which is your hangout friends. And there needs to be people in your life that you hang out with that just like iron sharpening iron, that you're encouraging one another that you spend a lot of time around one another, that you're friends with one another. Too many times, teenagers, young people, and we can even do this as adults, we get this mixed up. And the people that God has called us to help out end up changing, and we start to become hangout friends with us. And what happens is, when you start flipping your hangout friends to your help out friends, you end up needing helped out. <laughs> That's what happens. Eventually, your character starts to match the help out friends when you become a hangout friend with them. And then you need this fourth category, which is a seek-out friend. These are people that, that are maybe further than where you are. They're going where you want to go. They're maybe a father in the faith or a big brother in the faith. or They're people who uh, have an influence in your life. Sometimes these people don't even have to be near you to have an impact on you. They can be people that you see from afar or learn from from afar, but you still seek them out. This is what Paul is to Timothy. He's a seek-out type of friend. And so we all need a seek-out type of friend. We all need those hang-out, seek-out type of friends, those relationships that last. So, so what can we do as followers of Jesus to have these relationships that last? Because my hope is that we would be able to look back 10 years from now and still be able to look in, around at the people in this room and still be able to call some of them old friends, right? And, and so that's our, that's our hope, Right? And so what would it be? I'm going to give you four things that I believe we need. And the first one I've already said, but it's so key. And that is very simple. We need time. We have to have time for, for relationships that can last. Now, to help us understand a little bit more about how this can impact us, I'm going to illustrate this. So let's take a look at this video. Okay, here's an illustration for you. Have you guys ever wondered why it seems like the longer that you live, the shorter the years go by? I mean, it's like already August of 2021, and it seems like it's just flown by already. So one way to, I was talking with somebody this week about that. One way to help us think about that is in some ways that years do get shorter. And so let me help you uh, think this through. So let's say you have a four-year-old, and this represents the four-year-old's life. And if you slice up his life into years, uh, you only have four slices, uh, you know, representing each year. And so each year of his life is a pretty big percentage of his life. But on the other hand, if you have somebody who's 50 years old, all of a sudden you have a lot of these slices of life. Boy, that's a horrible drawing job there. You have a lot of these slices of life. Uh, and so each year, each little piece of the pie here, now every year that's added, 
it, the sliver or the percentage of life actually is smaller than before. So it seems like, man, every year just seems to fly by. It seems to be shorter than the years before. And in some ways it is. I mean, percentage wise of, of your life, every year added it percentage wise, it makes it, it is shorter. And so that's one way to think about it. And so uh, relationships that last obviously take a the progression of time. It's, it's a lifetime. But each one of these slices also represents seasons of our life. So there's, you know, good seasons, bad seasons, hard seasons, uh, ups and downs. And so a relationship that lasts has to survive all of those seasons. And that's why relationships that last are really hard to come by. And, but another thing, way to think about it, it's not just the progression of time that make relationships last. It's actually the investment of time into each one of these slices of life. So I want you to think about it a little bit differently here because uh, that's a horrible drawing there. Uh, let's just start over here and let's look at your life. Let's do this again and let's look at your life like in the present moment. And each one of these slices now represent uh, time that you have in your life. Okay. So these are hours of the day. Let's say there are 24 hours or let's say there are seven pieces uh, for a week. They all represent slices of time. And so now what we have to do is we have to look at how much of my life, what percentage of my time am I actually investing in relationships? The, the University of Kansas did a study uh, several years ago and they were actually studying uh, what it takes to actually become friends. And it was really interesting because what they discovered, and they had this whole uh, way that they did this in surveys and stuff, but they discovered that it actually takes 50 hours to go from acquaintances to casual friends. Think about that, 50 hours. And it's not just like work hours, it's like hours of leisure and relaxation and downtime. 50 hours, 50 hours of this time to actually become from an acquaintance to a casual friend. But it takes over 200 hours to go from casual friend to close friend. And so some of us wonder why we don't have close friends is because we're not, we're not even in the progression of time. We're not investing the time, the hours into what it takes to actually become close friends. It reminds me uh, of Brady Boyd, Pastor Brady Boyd. He said it this way. He said, it takes a long time to become old friends. It takes a long time to become old friends. So relationships that stand the test, uh, they take time. My second career is an artist. That's what I was going for. Um, didn't pan out. Um, so Paul, at this time, he... Uh, He's known Timothy, you know, it's a little bit debated about how long it is, but it's somewhere around 18 years he's known Timothy. That's a long time. He lists people at the end of this letter that he's known also for 18 years. I mean, people who have stood the test of time. Uh, Daniel Grothy, a pastor out in uh, Colorado that I follow, he said this. He said, I'm suspicious of people whose closest friends are their newest friends. Let me say that again. I'm suspicious of people whose closest friends are always their newest friends. Why? Because relationships worthwhile, they take time. They take weathering storms. And if your closest friend is always your newest friend, it tells me something about you that you're not willing to put in the time to weather the storms, to weather all of those seasons. Because too many times in relationships, we find friends that make us feel good, but don't make us get better. 
You guys are quiet today. I'm just saying, okay, you guys can talk back. If you hear something you like, amen. If you hear something you don't like, amen anyway, okay? It will help me out, okay? But too many times we do find friends that make us feel good, make us feel better, but don't help us get better. And we need, to, we need to find some friendships, find some relationships that will stand the test of time. All right, the second thing is this, walk in the fruit of the Spirit. If you wanna have a relationship that lasts, that, that goes through all those hard seasons, you are going to need the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's found in Galatians chapter five, verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and that's simply the result of the Spirit's work in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Listen, you're not gonna make it very far in relationships if you don't have love, if you don't have peace, if you don't have joy. If, if people are always walking around uh, around you and there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no love, there's no self-control, there's no gentleness, you are not going to weather this, the test of time in relationships. And so the fruit of the Spirit is a big deal in relationships if you want to have a relationship that lasts. This is for a marriage, this is for friendships, this is for church relationships. This is for even uh, your relationships at work with people. This applies to all of it. Uh, recently, I've been listening to this podcast. Um, some of you guys might be familiar with it, but it's a podcast about a national ministry that basically imploded several years ago as a result of uh, pride and arrogance and uh, you know, just total out-of-control leadership that happened uh, at the top, basically devoid of the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the things that's really been on my heart lately, you know, we can have all of these goals and we can set all these goals in our life. We can have these financial goals. We can have these ministry goals. We can have all these goals in our life, business goals. We can have these things that we want to achieve in our life. But really the thing that God keeps coming back to me this year in 2021 is if, if somehow I could have more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out of my life, that would be a win for my life. If somehow I could be more, I could just have more love, joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that, that that would be a win. And that would be enough, you know, that that would be enough. But too many times in relationships, we end up burning bridges and, and it's usually because of a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. But I just want some more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. How do we get that? Well, one of my favorite scriptures is Psalm chapter 1 and verse 3. There's a picture painted in this, and it says this. He is like a tree. Get this picture in your mind. A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. See, when you're planted by the right source, imagine the roots going into the stream of life, the Holy Spirit, the life of God. When you're planted in the life of God, when you keep coming back to the Word of God, you keep spending time with the Spirit of God, you keep going back to Jesus, and your roots are deep in Jesus, guess what? You're going to have the fruit that comes from that. But if you're not, Guess what happens? You know, there's other things in that scripture. You can look it up in, in uh, Galatians chapter five. There's also something called the works of the flesh. Things like anger, things like division, things like strife. All of those are the fruit of the flesh. 
So how do you know? Those are like warning, warning lights in your life. Whenever you have anger, whenever you have division, whenever you have envy, whenever you have strife, whenever you have all those other things listed there, those are warning signs that you're dry. They're warning signs that your roots are not in the stream anymore. And, and so there have been times in my life, let me just be real with you guys, there have been times in my life where I have been in it, when I've had the fruit of the flesh in my life. And I, I found that when those things happen, when I'm dry, it's because somewhere along the way I uprooted myself from the stream and I placed myself out into the desert. But listen, I still look like a good tree. I was in the desert, but I looked like a good tree. How can you be in the desert and look like a good tree. The only way you can be in a desert, look like a good tree, is if you're a plastic fake tree. It looks good. But here's the thing about fake trees, they cannot bear fruit. And so you may, you may look like a great tree, but when push comes to shove, you're not going to bear the fruit of the Spirit because you're not planted in the root with, with your roots in the stream. We have to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And, and if you want to have relationships that last, not burn bridges, then you're going to have to have the, the fruit of the Spirit. It means go back to the well. Go put your roots back in the stream, all right? Now, number three is this. We have to practice the one another's by faith. What are the one another's? Well, in Scripture, there's a lot of one another's in the New Testament. Basically, these are instructions for the followers of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a lot of one another's. Uh, according to one source, about one-third of these one-anothers have to do with getting along with each other. And unity, examples would be this. Like scriptures, you can look up. Be at peace with one another. Accept one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek the good for one another. Don't complain about one another. One-third of these one-anothers have to do with loving. So examples would be love one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Through love, serve one another. 15% have to deal with humility. So give preference and honor to one another. Be subject to one another. Regard others as more important than yourself. Some of the other one another's would be bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, pray for one another. There's a lot of one another's in scripture. But if you want to uh, have a relationship that stands the test of time, you need to find some of those one another's and start to practice those, not because someone deserves it, not because you feel like it, but you practice it by faith as a seed. You practice it not because of the track record it's had in the past, not because of what somebody has done to you, but you practice it by faith. That's practicing the one another's. Now, there, there's many examples of this in Scripture. One example, I'm just going to help illustrate. I've done this before, but I like to give you pictures that stick with you in your mind to help remember these things. So let's watch. All right, I'm up on the roof of the church because there's a famous story in the Bible about a roof and ultimately a church service. And so many of you guys have heard it. It's found in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching the word of uh, God's word to them. So Jesus is in the house. He's preaching. Packed out place. There's no more room. There's no more place. And so these guys show up. It says these four men arrive carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So four friends carrying a friend, an injured person, a wounded person, trying to get him to Jesus, trying to get him to church. 
but they could not get in because of the crowd. So imagine you show up at Journey Church and the, the place is packed out. You invited a friend. The friend is, is maybe hurt spiritually, hurt you know, emotionally or whatever, and you can't get in. And so you climb up on the roof. I'm not saying you should do this, but you climb up on the roof and you start to do what they did. It says they dug a hole in the roof. So you dig a hole in the roof and they lowered the man down on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. So that, this is what they did. They tore a hole in the roof. And the, then skip down to verse 10. It says, then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. So these people, these four friends, had an opportunity. They had several things they could have done when they showed up and there was no room for them. They could have, one, said, well, we just don't fit in here. We don't fit in in this church, or we don't fit in in this family, or I don't fit into this friend group. But that's not what they did. They, they're like, well, we can't get in through the door, but nobody's tearing off the roof, so let's go do that. So you may have tried to do some of these one another's, and maybe you tried serving in a certain area. Maybe you tried a, a certain friend, a friendship, and it just didn't work out. Be like these guys. Say, well, if that didn't work, I'm going to try to do something else by faith. Another thing they could have done is they could have just got offended. You know, offense is one of the quickest ways for us to ruin the purposes of God and the plans of God in our life. It's just to get stuck in offense. Listen, offense is not something that happens to us. It's sin that lives in us. Or they could have got offended for their friend. See, if Satan can't get you upset, he'll try to get you upset for someone else. But they didn't do any of that. They just decided we're going to find a way by faith. And when you do that, and you do these one another's by faith, when you serve somebody by faith, when you honor somebody by faith, when you give to somebody by faith, what are you doing? You're actually sowing relational seeds to your future. You're sowing seeds to your relational future. And I know this firsthand. I mean, even this, this past week recently, I met with a pastor who was discouraged and he was just saying, listen, I know you can't fix this but I just need somebody to carry this with me. And so I do that often. I'll talk with people, talk with pastors often who maybe are discouraged, just need, need somebody to help carry the burden with someone else. In fact, before I shot this video, I had another text from another pastor, similar situation. I just need someone to carry this with me. That's practicing the one another's by faith. Why do I do that? Well, I do that to serve people, but I also do that because I know that people have done that for me and that I'll need that in the future. So we, one of the ways that we have relationships that last are practicing the one another's by faith. Yeah, I don't know if our insurance covers if you do go on the roof, but that would be pretty cool just to see that one day. Um, somebody's gonna do it. Um, <laughs> practice one another's by faith. All right, the fourth thing is this. This may be the toughest to, to really walk through, but it's this. If you wanna have a relationship that lasts, you have to push through the pain. You have to push through the pain. Most people stop at pain. Once you notice something about that story, you know, Jesus says there at the end, he says to the man who had been paralyzed, I mean, imagine being paralyzed, everybody has to carry around on a mat all day. Everywhere he goes is the mat. He can't get anywhere without the mat. And Jesus tells him, you're healed, your sins are forgiven. Now pick up that mat, roll it up, and go home. 
that Matt represented that guy's identity. I mean, everybody knew he was Matt guy, right? I mean, he was the guy with the mat. He was the guy who was paralyzed. But all of a sudden, he had been healed. And how crazy would it be for him just to ride around on the mat for the rest of his life after he'd been healed? And yet that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? Like we have an opportunity to walk in freedom. We have an opportunity to be healed. And we just, we just lay out the mat and like, hey, everybody carry me around, you know? But that mat represented his identity and he told him to roll it up and to walk out different than when he came in. Is it possible that Jesus would say to you to roll up your mat and walk out different today than when you came in? Do we have the, the do we really believe See, you might say, you might say this, but, but Sean, you don't understand. I'm hurt. You don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand what I tried to do to fix it. You don't understand that now I have a hard heart. You don't understand how wounded I am. You don't understand my past. You don't understand. Listen, I may not understand any of that. But, but I would say, if, if you say, I don't understand, I would say this in all love and sincerity. I'd say, welcome to the club. Because I could take this microphone around to every single person in this room, and I'm pretty confident that every person in this room would have a story of hurt. Maybe different degrees, but we'd all have a story to tell. Every single one of us. And I don't know where we got off thinking that Jesus is big enough to secure my eternity in heaven, to give me a home in heaven, to resurrect my body, to resurrect from the dead, to forgive me of all of my sins, and he's not big enough to heal my hurt. I'm telling you, he is big enough to heal your hurt. In fact, that's why he came. He's one of the reasons why he came. He said that he came to heal the brokenhearted. This is what he said. He said, this is my mission, to heal the brokenhearted. He's big enough to heal your hurt. But you might have to push through the pain in order to get to Jesus. You might have to push through the possible offense in order to get to Jesus. You might have to be pushing through the possible rejection in order to get to Jesus. You might have to be willing to roll up your mat final once and for all and to set it aside and never be carried around on it again in order to push past the pain. I was talking to a physical therapist friend of mine years ago, and he told me this story. And I'm probably going to botch up the story, but I'll give you the, the main point of the story as I tell it. Uh, there was this Olympic cyclist uh, who was training uh, for the Olympics and was on this bike. And, and as she was riding this bike and started to go uphill, she injured her back somehow on this bike. And so they, they got her, they got a bunch of rehab. They got her to the place where they got her all healed back up and, and went through all the process, looked at all the tissue, did all the whatever they needed to do. And they got her back ready. They got her on a stationary bike. Everything's fine. She's holding up. She's doing well. They finally get her all prepped and ready to go back out on the road to the real thing. And so they, they get her out on the real thing. Everything's going great. And then she starts going uphill. And as soon as she starts going uphill, she feels that same pain that she felt when she injured her back going uphill. So they get her off the bike. They go back in. They look at everything again. They're like, no. Everything's fine. You're completely fine. Like, there should not be an issue here. So they get her out again. They, they do the whole thing, and she's fine. And then as soon as she starts to go uphill, the same pain, intensity starts to happen again. As soon as she starts to go uphill, they can't figure it out. They finally realize that we, we just need to convince her that every time she goes uphill, she's not injuring her back. She's, not, she's fine. 
So they continued to, to so they, they, they tried something else. They, they took a stationary bike and they put a screen in front of her at, like she's riding on the road, right? So it's simulating that she's outside and she's riding on the road and then everything's fine. And then they tilted the screen in such a way that it simulated her going uphill, instant back pain on a stationary bike. And they said, listen, there's no harm happening to your back. But it, it, it's the result of something they call what fires together, wires together, that your brain all of a sudden connects to something, you know, that, that pain is really felt as a signal from our brain anyway. It's going out. And so even though she wasn't having actual injury, her brain was still telling her that she was injuring it because it fired together and wired together. And it had a memory there, a memory path, a memory connection that whenever she goes uphill, there's pain. And so the brain would send pain even though there was no damage actually happening. Now, how many of you guys have ever had this happen before with like a song? You hear a song and instantly it takes you back to another place. Have you guys ever had that happen before? How about a smell that you smell a certain smell and instantly it takes you over to grandma's house or something on Thanksgiving, right? And you're ready to eat, right? It's the same thing. Something fired together, wired together that your brain is now telling you that when you have this sensation or this, uh, this information that this thing should happen. And they, they begin to convince her that, that uh, and they had these sayings like, hurt does not equal harm, sore but safe. And she began to eventually, she began to push through. She would ride and she would go uphill and she would have the same pain that she had when she injured, but she kept going. She kept riding and she pushed into the pain. And as she pushed into the pain over and over and over again, eventually her brain started to register that she was not actually injuring her body and the pain, little by little, began to decrease until she didn't have any more pain. Some of us have pain in the body. And I'm not talking about pain in your physical body. Some of you have pain in the body of Christ. And every time you walk into a church, you feel that pain. Every time you walk into a small group, you feel that pain. Every time you start to get close to somebody, you feel that pain. Every time you walk around that friend group or you hear somebody say this certain thing, you feel that pain. And, and what I'm saying is that's a real pain. You are feeling pain. I'm not discounting the pain you feel. Something fired together and wired together from a past experience. And now every time you walk into this experience, you feel legit pain. But here's my question. What if you're healthier than you think you are? What if it's not in the pulling back, but what if it's in the pushing in? What if it's in, what if it were actually in the pushing in that the pain started to disappear rather than the pulling back? What if you could have a revelation that Jesus is the one that heals and that he's healed you? And, and what, if, what if, let's just use Journey Church for example. What if Journey Church is a healthy place? Not perfect. I know it's not perfect. But what if it were healthy? And the reason I say healthy is because I can look around this room. I looked around the room last night and I can see in this room are some of the most loving, some of the most forgiving, some of the most gracious people I've ever met in my life. Not perfect people, but healthy. What if you are in a healthy place right now and you are just feeling the pain from some other event? 
And what if it were in the pushing in that the pain disappeared? What if it was in the pushing in? And yes, there's real pain. Yes, there's going to be pain. Yes, there's going to be pain. But what if in the pushing in? See, we somehow have this expectation that we, we know this is not reality, but we somehow go into relationships that, that there's not, there shouldn't be any messes. Let me tell you, in relationship, there are messes. There are messes in every relationship. In the best relationships, there are tensions, there are conflicts, there are things that have to be worked out. There are messes that have to be cleaned up. Sometimes those messes end up turning into good memories later on. You know that God can take a mess and turn it into a good memory later on. He can do that. I was thinking about um, when, <laughs> when uh, my son was young. He was probably one or two, and we were sitting at the dinner table. He's, we're having some mac and cheese that night, and we're sitting there at the dinner table. He's got his shirt off like a boss, you know, just sitting at, at the table, you know, just eating his mac and cheese. And, and so I look over at him, and just the little, little one or two-year-old, and I just get this little twinkle in my eye. He kind of looks at me, and we're kind of honoring this moment. And I just slowly reach over for some mac and cheese, and I just grab a handful of mac and cheese. And, and I just throw it across the table, and I just slap it right on his naked chest. And he, without skipping a beat, just grabbed some and he threw it right back at me. And we just started throwing mac and cheese everywhere. Becca's eyes are like this right now. And, and there's mac and cheese all over the walls. It's all over the place. And she said, well, you're cleaning up this mess. <laughs> and I did. We cleaned up that mess. But that's what we have to be willing to do in relationships. We have to be willing to clean up the messes. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. And the fruit of the Spirit, the one another's, allow us to walk in and to clean up the messes. Because what happens in relationships, whenever you have a mess, I've said this before, but people end up, they end up basically having a paper shredder or a file cabinet with the mess. And they, they take the mess and they shred it up and say, I forgive. Or, come on, if we're honest, most of us have our file cabinets, don't we? And we're filing away that mess. I'm gonna use that later. I'm gonna need that later. I'm gonna protect myself with that later. I'm gonna remember that later. Uh, I'm gonna not ever let myself be in that situation again. I'm not gonna ever get it that close to somebody. I'm not gonna ever, they're not gonna, and we start making all these inner vows, right? But we got our file cabinet. See, if you wanna have relationships that last, you need more of a paper shredder than a file cabinet. And you gotta start shredding up those things. You gotta start releasing those things to the Lord. You gotta start forgiving those things. You can't have a list. You know, that love keeps no record of wrongs. And so many of us have experienced that in the body. I'm gonna have the worship team come back up, but as they do, let me, let me read a couple things to you. Edith Eager said this, and she was a Holocaust survivor and all kinds of crazy things. I don't have time to get into it, but I, I like the quote because I think there's something there. She said, time doesn't heal, it's what you do with the time. Healing is possible when we choose to take responsibility, when we choose to take risks, and when we, we finally we choose to release the wound, to let go of the past and to grieve. It's not just time, but it's what we do with the time. You know, you can't just sit there and have a, a mess and then just expect that it's just gonna all work out with time. No, you have to do something with the time. And I wanna say this, this last, last statement um, and then we're going to receive communion. But, but somebody needs to hear this because when we're practicing these one another's, you do it by faith. And here's one of the reasons why we do it by faith. And I'm, I'm going to say this, put it up on the screen for you. Love does not become real love until we have to choose love instead of 
feeling love. Wouldn't it be great if you just always felt loving towards people? But love, scriptural, the Jesus kind of love does not become real love until you have to choose to love instead of feeling love. Because what happens is most of us just end up with an infatuation love that ebbs and flows based on how we feel. And that's not the love of Scripture. That's not the love of Jesus. That's not the love that comes from God. And so we have to do that, and we practice those one another by faith. Now, we talk about famous last words. There's, the reason we can do this is because of some of Jesus' famous last words that he said on the cross. And it says in John chapter 19, verse 28, as we prepare to receive communion, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the Spirit. When Jesus said, it is finished, what, did, what do you mean by that? Everything that needed to be done to set us free from sin, to set us free from hell, to set us free from the enemy, to set us free from the devil, to give us eternal life, had been nailed to the tree with him. And he ultimately rose from the dead so that we can walk in life. He said, it is finished. The reason why that's so important for us on our topic today is that Jesus didn't just set us free to forgive us of our sin. He set us free for us to walk in freedom. He set us free so that we don't have to be forgiven of sin and then fall back into sin. He set us free so we can walk in freedom in relationships, so we can walk in the God kind of life-giving relationships. That's why his famous last words on the cross, are, it is finished, are so important to us today. That he did everything that needed to be done. Jesus doesn't have to get up back on the cross and die all over again every time we have a mess in a relationship. Every time we need forgiveness or every time somebody needs, we, we need to forgive someone. He has already done it. We can step into that now. What does that mean? That means even right now. If someone has wronged you because of Jesus, it is finished. It can be finished. You can release. You can, you can tread that. It doesn't mean that what happened was right, but it means that you can be free. That's what it means. It means you can be free. That you can walk out, you can roll up your mat as you walk out of this place, and you can walk out a different person. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so when we get ready, you can have that little, that little nice little fancy contraption there. And in there, there's a, a cracker and then there's some juice. And the cracker represents the, the body that was broken for us. The, the juice represents the blood that was spilled for us. And during this next song, we're gonna receive that. You can just take a moment during this next song, whenever you're ready, and receive that at any time. What we're doing is we're remembering Jesus suffering, but we're also remembering his victory. He said, this do in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we just thank you so much for what you've done for us, that it is for freedom that you've set us free. And, Lord, if anyone knows pain, you know pain, and you enter into our pain. But you love us too much to leave us in our pain. And you call us out. You call us up. You're the lifter of our head. So as we receive this communion today, we remember the price that you paid for us to walk in grace, 
Remember the price that you paid for us to walk in victory. Remember that even at times when we're faithless, that you're still faithful, that you're the ultimate demonstration of someone who sticks with us, a relationship that stands the test of time. You said you would never leave us or never forsake us. And we're so thankful for that. Just receive communion sometime during this song. Thank you.